0: Okay, um, there are a couple things that I want to draw your attention to real quick. On the back of the packet uh, you have in front of you, um, I try to say this as often as I can. I, I normally, on Wednesday night for the packet, include a bibliography of just sources that I use to put this packet together, and I'll just say, as a rule of thumb, I try to say this every once in a while, as a rule of thumb, if I put something in your hand that's got writing on it, 99 times out of 100, I did not write that. Alright, so that comes from a combination of sources that I might have edited, I might have manipulated, I might put in a paragraph here or there, but the vast majority of it comes from the sources that are listed on the back here. In particular, I want to draw your attention to one of these um, books, the one at the very top, called Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom, which is a mouthful, but... This is part of a a series called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. Those books are short, they're small, and they're written for everyday Christians. That does not mean that they don't cover deep topics. They do cover deep topics, but they're, they're written in a very accessible way that most anybody who's been a Christian for any period of time could read them and and you know, and, and get them. Uh, I would suggest starting with some that are maybe even a little bit of a lighter read, and you can kind of get the hang of them. They're all written by different people. This one was written by G.K. Beale. He's got a couple on this list that I think are helpful. The other two books are uh, 180 degrees the opposite of that. They are uh, pretty dense. They're very good, but they are very dense, so just be prepared. If you kind of go and buy one of those, they're going to be uh Shannon, Shannon has taken a couple of my recommendations for books and she's going, <laughs> I need lighter. I need lighter. <laughs> so that, that, that series at the top, short studies in biblical theology, is, just, is really accessible. They're very good. And uh, I'd be just surprised if you weren't uh, blessed by them in one way or another. And, and just uh, as an aside here, when you see the term biblical theology, what that means is it's tracing a theme that runs throughout scripture. So invariably, the times when anyone teaches you and you go, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that, it's because they've just demonstrated biblical theology for you, like tracing a theme throughout scripture. So biblical theology is really kind of where you get your mind blown a lot, is in that field of study. So Uh, I would I would commend those that series to you just you know, pick one on the book list and order it or whatever and uh, And I I, I can almost guarantee you you will be you'll be blessed by it. All right So we're going to continue in the book of Daniel and I want to let me just preempt some of this Um, I know There's no easy way to do the prophets I've just resigned myself to the fact that there's just no easy way to tackle it no matter what uh, anytime you get into the prophets, it's going to be difficult, but when you get into the book of Daniel, that is ratcheted up another five degrees because or maybe even more because for one, everybody's got an opinion, so, so whether you think you do or not, you do. You've got a, a history of people that have taught you one way or another You have your own um, insight and opinions about things that you've read and and stuff like that. I get that. And what I'm putting forward in this is really consistent with my own opinion on the way I I see Daniel shaping up. I get that too. So, there's not a doubt in my mind that at some point I'm going to say something tonight you disagree with. I'm fine with that. And you should be too. Because... A hundred people are going to disagree with what you say, also. So it's it's fine, right? There's going to be disagreement, and that's okay. What 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 I don't like is when we in churches take texts that are highly debatable and that we have a lot of disagreement on, and we make those the central issues because they're really not. So we're not going to do that. We're just gonna. I'm going to present the way that I I read it and explain the way I'm thinking about it. And maybe that will help you in just sort of understanding what we're going for. Another thing that I want to say is that there, there is a system of thought about the end times that many in churches are taught that I disagree with. All right. That's part of the reason why there may be some things I say tonight that you disagree with. Um, I'm not from the dispensational persuasion, all right? And some of you hear that term and you're like, I don't even know what that is. And that's fine, all right? Because I'm not going to explain it tonight very much other than to say there are, there are, there's a way of teaching the end times that says all these things that we're talking about are still in our future and actually they're never going to happen to us. They're going to happen to a group of native Israelites after we're gone. From here, right? You all know kind of that, that stream of thinking. I don't see it that way, and I don't think that's what the Bible is talking about. I'm gonna make my case, and you don't have to agree with me. I get it. We can agree to disagree, and that's fine, or we can talk about it more. I'm happy to do that too. Um, we're not gonna throw things at each other, that's for sure. All right, so, uh, so you can just put all those things away, but I'm gonna make the case for why I see it the way I do, and what I really want to do more than anything is look at the Bible itself and say, this is why I see it that way, because of these things in the text. Not because of what so-and-so said, and because of who's what he said, or anything like that, but because of what I see here, and you, you're going to be able to lay your eyes on the text of Scripture too, and then we can, we can talk about that. Third thing, and this is it, all right? In building blocks on Sunday, I was in the same passages I'm going to be in tonight, all right? So, if you were in building blocks, I apologize. Some of this is going to be a rehash, all right? In building blocks, I went through Daniel 7 and then mentioned Daniel 2. Tonight, I'm going to go through Daniel 2 and mention Daniel 7, all right? So, you get it, okay. (sighs) Now, now that that's all out of the way, let's uh, start with this first bullet point here. Um, As I said, the book of Daniel is often debated for its many complex vision sequences, which are very difficult to understand. And it seems that even when there is an explanation given for the vision that's given in Daniel, that that explanation is even more confusing than the vision was, right? You read it and you go, I still don't understand what he's talking about, right? And so it seems to be that that causes the source of a lot of controversy. And um, there's really no getting around that. So the, the best way to think about biblical prophecy, and in particular apocalyptic literature, like what we're in in Daniel, is you ever, you ever have to mow a yard where the grass is overgrown? You know, Philip Hyman, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You, you, were, you grew up with the golf course, so you know. When the grass is too tall and you take your mower and you got it cranked and you go into it, immediately the mower goes and just bogs down. And then you crank it and it bogs down again. And you, you're going to keep doing that until you can't even get through the whole yard. All right? So the best way to attack it is to take a weed eater and skim the top, right? And then get a little bit deeper and get a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And then you can go over and mow it till you get it, when you get it short enough. Now, apocalyptic literature is a lot like that. You sit in here and we talk about Daniel and I read through the text and I try to explain it and you go, Die, you lost me. I have no idea what you're talking about, right? Because if you try to just plow through it and understand every little thing in the text, it's going to be really, really confusing for you. But if you've never been through a study like this or, or going through the ins and outs of these prophetic texts, it's best to glean what you can off the top. If you leave here and you go, that's one thing that I understand that I didn't understand, even if it's the smallest of things, it's one stone in the brook, right? And eventually, you start to collect those over time until you have a full-blown dam built, all right? So that's that's what we're trying to do, one pebble at a time, all right? So just stick with me through this and just glean what you can, and if I lose you at some point, just... Keep tracking as best you can, and I, and I think we'll be okay. One of the debates about the book of Daniel is it, it really centers around this text in Daniel chapter 2 that is a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has. Most of you are probably very familiar with the story, even if you've never, when, when you wrestle with the interpretation of the dream, it becomes really difficult. But the, de- de- the debate around that text involves the identi- identification of the four world empires or kingdoms that are described in the dream. And what happens in this text, is you'll see, we're going to go through it chunk by chunk, but what you'll see is we get to this vision, this dream, that Daniel's going to tell Nebuchadnezzar about. And most people will focus on the identity, the real-world identity, of the four beasts that really, for all intents and purposes, are not given to us. And not focus on the meaning that then comes from the dream. And the meaning as it's conveyed to Nebuchadnezzar, which actually is the point of the book. Okay, Which helps us get, get to that point and establish that point. So instead of majoring on the minors, we'll talk briefly about those, but instead of majoring on those things, we'll look more intently about what's being spoken here and how that compares or balances or parallels what's happening in Daniel chapter 7. Here's one thing that you need to know about the book of Daniel as a whole is that the first nine chapters are designed to parallel each other. Chapter 1 they come into the book of Daniel, they come in, they're, they're in exile, and they're, bringing, they're being brought into the land of Babylon. And chapter 9, they're released, right? So there's a, there's a parallel there. Well, chapter 2 and chapter 7 and 8 actually parallel each other as well, because we're going to have uh, kingdoms here that are represented by a statue, and we're going to have kingdoms in chapter 7 represented by beasts. And what you'll notice in this passage that we're in, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have this dream of this statue of a man, which the head is gold. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to be told in this dream that this represents the demise, the eventual demise of his kingdom. And you'll find that in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, he decides to create himself a full size statue that's solid gold. <laughs> I'll be if I'm going to be upset, upset in my kingdom and kicked out, you know. And, and if you don't bow down to it, well, then, you know, something's gonna, something bad's going to happen to you. So the story continues to progress until you get to the middle of this, of, the, of this main part here, chapters one through nine, which is right there in chapters four and five where God takes the two kings that are on the throne, Belshazzar in five and and Nebuchadnezzar in four, and he uh, brings their kingdoms asunder. He tears them asunder. Takes Nebuchadnezzar and he makes him eat grass like an ox, right? Until Nebuchadnezzar comes out of it on the other end and he goes, "Uh, okay, God, you're the one that is supreme over everything. You sit enthroned on high and no one can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done, right? Nebuchadnezzar learns this lesson, and that actually becomes the central theme of the book of Daniel. It comes from the voice of Nebuchadnezzar, who in this scene that we're about to look at is depicted as this sort of majestic leader, conqueror of the world. Got it? Tracking with me so far? Okay, this is how Daniel's unfolding. So let's get into this text and look at, uh, oh, sorry, don't write any answers down. Okay, there it is. Daniel chapter 2, Verses 31 to 35, you saw, O king, oh, let me set this up real quick, just as what's happening. Daniel and some other leaders in Babylon have been called to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and he wants an interpretation for this dream. So the diviners come to him and say, well, okay, well, tell us a dream, we'll give you an interpretation. And he says, it's not going to work that way. You're going to tell me the dream. And then you're going to give me the interpretation. They all say, I don't think we can do that. So Daniel goes away and and prays. The Lord tells him, I'll give you the interpretation of the dream and, and the dream and all this kind of stuff. So Daniel is now standing in front of King Nebuchadnezzar and he says, don't put anybody to death. I will tell you what your dream was and then I'll give you the interpretation. So here it is. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, tracking so far, we got this statue that he sees in this vision. The head at the top is gold, so each little, it's divided into four pieces essentially. Each piece is of a different material, and they're placed together. Gold at the top, silver in the at the, the chest, uh, the middle uh, of where is it bronze? The middle and thighs of bronze. Its legs were a mix, uh, iron and clay. You ever try to put iron and clay together? You couldn't imagine they would mix very well, right? Okay. So the point is that they're divided into four, and then you've got this final. Uh, little stone that comes in at the very end here, and it strikes the image and at the feet, and the feet crumble and then the whole the rest of the whole thing comes tumbling down and crumbles into pieces. And this little stone then becomes this great mountain that filled the whole earth. all right? Okay. So King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. no one except Daniel could interpret. In his dream, the king saw a giant. Statue of a man consisting of four sections. Daniel explained that this represented four kingdoms on the earth, the last of which would be destroyed. So each of these little pieces in this, um, this statue come to represent four kingdoms that will be successive. And we're going to see Daniel's explanation of it in just a minute, but for now, just suffice to say, he explains these as four successive kingdoms. One is going to replace the other. This is why Nebuchadnezzar builds a, a golden statue and uh, and says, you will worship this statue. Bow down to it, right? Remember this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Throw them in the furnace and all that kind of stuff because it wouldn't bow down to the statue. This is why he builds this big statue. I'll be if we're going to have a kingdom come and, and take out my kingdom. That's not going to happen, right? So, um, but that's the point. He, this, this statue comes to represent these kingdoms, the last of which will be destroyed by the stone that grows into a great mountain and fills the earth. What we're also told in just before Daniel interprets this dream is in verses 27 and 28. Look at this. This sets the context of this passage and its interpretation. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel's making sure he says, I'm not the one interpreting this for you. God in heaven gave me this interpretation. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. All right, this little phrase here, becomes really really important depending on how you define latter days is how you think of this particular dream coming to fulfillment so what is certain is that nebuchadnezzar needs to know this right as we're going to see in a minute and what is also certain is that all of this is going to take place in the in the latter days but when are the latter days is the question when do, those, when do those come about? Now, I have been adamant that as we study the prophecies in the Old Testament, instead of, when, when we read some of these, these events that take place, sometimes because of the, maybe it's the way we were brought up, maybe it's a particular teacher that we revere, or whatever, or a book we read one time, or whatever, our minds immediately go to rapture, antichrist, and the list goes on. You with me? You ever have these thoughts come to your mind? Well, that's got to be this person, and that's got to be Nikolai Carpathia, and that's got to be all these different things you see in Left Behind books or whatever, right? But, but you start to kind of build this big timeline of a sequence of events that are going to take place in our future. And what I've been adamant on is, okay, I get the feeling of wanting to jump to that portion of scripture or revelation or whatever but i want you to stop at the cross first all right at the very least i want you to stop there because nine times out of ten the old testament prophets are actually talking about what we know as the current age we live in talking about the age of the church the church age or the the age that comes subsequent to the cross of christ Right, and and yes, alluding to the time when Jesus would return, and so it's it's sort of a complex way of thinking about this. I know because it's it's a different gear, but I want to show you why I think that's important. Um, So he he lays these out, and he says uh, this is going to happen in the latter days. I think when we get to the New Testament. The New Testament authors want you to understand that the days you currently live in are the latter days. I've had that question asked to me before, and I I want to just read a couple of passages. I, for whatever reason, did not include them in your packet, but you can write them down and you can listen to me read them, or you can turn there in your Bible if you want to. The first one is Hebrews 1, 2. I'll actually read 1, 1, and 2, but 1, 2 is the main verse. And I'll I'll say the verse reference, and then I'll read it. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. 1 Peter 1.20 1 Peter 1.20 he was foreknown, as Jesus we're talking about, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. He was made known in these last times. That's 1 Peter 1.20. Um, back in Hebrews, Hebrews 9.26... For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then we have Acts 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. That's Peter in the beginning of his sermon at Pentecost when everybody's wondering, why is it that these people are speaking in tongues? Are they drunk? He says, no, they're not drunk. This is a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And the significance of that particular quotation from the prophet Joel is that he's quoting an Old Testament prophet who says this is going to happen in the latter days. And he says, this is a fulfillment of that. So I think in every way we can expect that the New Testament authors are understanding the time that they live in, the era that they live in, as the latter days. Which is why I think it's important that when Daniel says... God has given you a vision for what is going to take place in the latter days. He means the time that you currently live in. That you're going to be the beneficiary of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Does that make sense? Tracking with me so far? Yeah? Okay. Um, so it's clear from the context that this dream was, a, was given by God to Nebuchadnezzar and it was a depiction of things that would take place in a time period Daniel calls the latter days. Um, Now, when it comes to these four different kingdoms that are represented in this statue, some have argued that these four kingdoms are in successive order, are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And others will say they represent Babylon, Medea, then Medo-Persia, and then Greece, right? And as soon as you read one, and you hear their arguments, you go, man, well, that's what it is then. And then you read the other person and their arguments, and you go, man, well, that's what it is then. (laughs) And which is it? And I'm sure the Lord will tell us one day, or maybe we just will stop caring altogether, I'm not going to make an argument one way or another for either one of them, really. I have my, my opinions on it, but uh, I'm going to leave that for another day. Um, the point is, that's, uh, it, it's, it's probably one of those two are correct. All right? So if you hear those, you go, eh, maybe, maybe that's it. The point is, Daniel doesn't give us the answers to that at all. And so, you know, we just keep going. Okay. Um, several important observations that we need to make about this text, okay, that, you, that you, you're going to have to see in here. First, this prophecy does not claim to describe every world power, then or now, okay? There are plenty of powers that are around, plenty of other nations that are around at that time that it doesn't talk about at all. These particular ones are highlighted for particular reasons, I'm sure but it's not labeling every world power. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but it's meant to describe the course of history from Babylonian captivity to the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom, that is the kingdom of the Messiah, of God as it relates to His covenant people. Remember what's happening in the book of Daniel. It's, It's vital that you understand the context of the book of Daniel. God has made a promise. First, He created Adam and Eve, and then Adam sinned, and now He said, I'm making a covenant people that i'm beginning with abraham and he he said i've made that promise and and i'm going to bring about the messiah through the line of abraham right remember this then through isaac and jacob and on and on well when we get to the exile then the question becomes well what happens now the people that you said were going to bring about the messiah are now in captivity in Babylon. But you made a promise. So now we're in Babylon, and this guy's making statues, and he's having dreams, and going to kill a bunch of people if they don't tell what his dreams are, and he's going to starve us all to death, he's going to put us on a new diet, he's going to do all of these different things, and how are we going to be sure that you're going to preserve us? So the entire book of Daniel is God demonstrating to Daniel demonstrating through Daniel to his people that I'm still in control of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm still in control of Darius. I'm still in control of all these jokers that try to come in and rule you, all right? I am the sovereign God of the universe, and I don't care where you are on the globe, right? I am. So the whole book of Daniel is proving that to you, the reader, also to Daniel, and also to all of Daniel's readers, which is all the people in captivity. Right? So the whole book of Daniel is making that in very important point. And so here is this world power that's being described, uh, these several world powers that are being told to Daniel, they're going to come into existence. They may supplant the one that came before them and take over and rule the day, but guess who's king over all of them? All right? Like, so that, that's the message overall that's being communicated to Daniel. Okay. Second, though the metals of the image increase in their degree of hardness, it deteriorates in value, weight, unity, and in brittleness. Or you might say it decreases in strength. It increases in brittleness. At the same time, they're part of one image. What that means is they are kingdoms built by mankind. So that is, the, that is the thing that you have to understand about this vision is, yes, it's four kingdoms, but why is it the statue of a man? And the reason it's a statue of man is because they represent the kingdoms of mankind. Yeah? Get it? So all of these kingdoms have some ve- so one very certain thing in common, and that is they all represent... The one statue of a man. Got it? Okay. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, it's, a, it's the kingdom of man, which we're going to talk about in a second, which is the definition of unredeemed. Um, all right. So, uh, but here's a, let's look at 30, verse 35. There, there's a third thing that you've you got to see here. He says, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold, so this is the statue of the man, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff. So this, this one rock comes in and just shatters it all, it's sort of like David's stone, right, from the sling. Comes in and breaks this statue into pieces. The wind carries them away so that not a trace of them can be found. But look at this very important thing about this stone that strikes it. First, notice how it's described. How is it described? What is it? strikes the image? It's a stone. It strikes the image, and what happens then? It became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. You know any stones that become great mountains and fill the whole earth? I mean, what's being communicated here? What starts off as a tiny little pebble eventually then grows into a giant mountain, right? and fills the entire earth. That's a bad drawing. I get it. I'm not claiming to be an artist. But you understand what's being communicated here is that this is an overtime process. So what's happening here is that Daniel is not telling you that this stone, where, whereas the image of the man, you've got one kingdom at the top, that's the head's made of gold, immediately it transitions into silver, then into bronze, then into iron and clay. And it's one kingdom that comes after the other that supplants the one before it and takes over. And then the next one takes over, and then the next one takes over. The last kingdom that comes in that shatters the statue, though, doesn't immediately supplant all the ones that are there. It grows until it occupies the whole earth. Tracking? It's a a gradual process. It is a different image entirely that comes in. So it's a gradual process that comes rather than all at once, uh, like the transition of the kingdoms that came before it. Okay, have I lost anybody? Are you tracking me with me so far? Good so far? Okay. All right. So finally then, we get this interpretation of the dream as it's spelled out here. Now, uh, this was the dream. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now, we will tell you, king, its interpretation. You, O king, listen to this, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Does that sound familiar? You ever heard that before? All right. Who becomes the king of kings to whom he gives the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory? Who is that? Uh, and all God's people said Jesus. All right. And into whose hand was given, he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field. Now listen to this. Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. Does that sound familiar? It does sound like Adam, doesn't it? He's made you Adam. And he's made you king of kings. Adam? King of kings? I mean, this... Nebuchadnezzar! Look at that! Wow. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you Yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. You're going to be supplanted. You, whom God gave as king over all, are going to be supplanted. You, just like Adam before you, are going to fall. And you're going to be dominated by someone weaker than you. Maybe like a serpent or something like that. So finally even though the primary focus of the interpretation is upon the latter-day events, the interpretation is still pertinent to Daniel's contemporary situation. In other words, it still matters to Nebuchadnezzar. This is going to happen in the latter days, but why would he tell Nebuchadnezzar that? If we're talking about, well, we're in the latter days, or maybe even, as some people say, the latter days are still in our future. Well, why would that matter to Nebuchadnezzar? You might say, it wouldn't. But what he's saying is, these kingdoms that are going to supplant you, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the latter days. So the kingdoms that come directly after you are going to end up leading to the ultimate fulfillment of this image that you see in your dream. You tracking so far? Okay. So the interpretation of the prophecy is not, not totally reserved for the remote future, but there's an immediate partial application in Daniel's day. So when, when Daniel is looking at the latter days, he's seeing this as one big, prolonged period of time. This is not, and this is something that has a slow ramp up, right? That it eventually gets here and it continues to grow until, it's, until it occupies the whole earth. This is not something that's going to happen with immediate speed and accuracy, all right? It's something that's going to take place over a long period of time. Okay, so then what do we make of this? How do, we even, how do we begin to interpret this? So the conclusion of the dream is reached with the advent of the kingdom of God, symbolized by a stone cut out with hands, that crushes and eventually replaces the non-Christian empires of this world. The prevailing question for modern interpreters is when did this, or when will this occur, and what form will it take? So here comes this rock that comes in, and let's, let's read the interpretation of it. So this is uh, in Daniel 2, 34 and 35, and then 40 to 45. He says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them into pieces. And then the iron and clay and the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then look at the interpretation in verse 40. And there shall be found uh, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now, pause right there for just a second. This is the part where you read that and you go, Don't do that, okay? I get it. we got a long way to go before we understand all the nuts and bolts of history and we put all this together and see where this is fulfilled. I'm not even worried about that right now, Okay? So just move past that and go, okay, let's 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. In other words, this is not a kingdom made by man. And that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure." So he's he's saying here, the kingdom that's coming in to supplant this will be a kingdom that God establishes, and that kingdom will have no end, and all of the rulers and authorities of the kingdom of man will be stripped of their power and supplanted by the power of this everlasting and eternal kingdom. Yeah? You got me? Okay. So when will this take place? Right? Right? is the question. And this is where we get tons of debate. You get the people that say, well, this is going to still be in the future for us and all this. And I'm going to say I think the answer of that question comes in Daniel chapter 7, which is the parallel to Jan- Daniel chapter 2. All right? So I won't read all of Daniel 7, 1 to 2, but I'll just set it up, okay? Okay. Um, there is going to be a universal kingship of the beast here in this picture removed. Here's what's, ha- here's what's happening. Daniel sees a vision in Daniel chapter 7. And in this vision, he sees four beasts, and he describes them, and he goes into great detail describing them, and they have, they're have terrible, nasty beasts. You know, one is a lion with wings, and, and which there's not a doubt in anyone's mind represents Babylon. All right, they have lions with wings all over their, their pillars and everywhere, right? So they, that's clear. Um, what becomes unclear are the beasts that follow. Who are these beasts? But the point is that they are kingdoms of mankind. They represent kingdoms of mankind that are coming after Babylon. And these beasts are terrible. One's a bear with ribs. One's a leopard with four heads. One's, I mean, it's just, just, just awful, terrible beasts. And this last beast that rises up, the fourth beast, is a beast like nobody has ever seen before, and he's got all these horns on his head, and and these horns are are just saying all kinds of terrible, nasty things. One thing that you've got to know, and you've got to kind of pin in your brain, is that for the most part, when apocalyptic literature speaks of beasts as images, they represent kingdoms, mankind kingdoms. And when it talks of horns, it represents the rulers of those kingdoms, typically. Okay, so just kind of use that as a little bit of a key. Sometimes the author of the text will correct you a little bit and say, you know, the beasts are kings and things like that, and that's okay. But for, on the whole, the beasts represent kingdoms, and the horns represent kings. And so there's these beasts that are just they're gnawing and gnashing their teeth, and they're demonstrating how powerful and how fierce they are. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of their warring and gnashing of their teeth, the Ancient of Days walks in to the room. And all of the beasts go quiet. And the Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne. And Daniel describes his throne and fire that breaks out from his throne and all this kind of stuff. And one of the beasts, that fourth one, he's the pesky one. He's got... An attitude about him and got a little tiny horn on top of his head that just keeps, it just keeps jabbering, right? At the Ancient of Days, just keeps talking all kinds of boastful things. And God looks at him, the Ancient of Days looks at him and just kills him. And all the rest of the beasts go, whoop! Right? Like <laughs> they kind of seize up. They remain silent, and immediately all of their crowns are taken away from them, their power and authority, and they're allowed to maintain some authority only for a little while. All right? Tracking with me so far? Okay. And then, in verse 13 and 14, this happens. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Does that sound like the stone that then turns into the mountain? Sounds a little bit like it, doesn't it? At least a little bit. Okay. Now, so we're, we're starting to get there, but you got to think about this for just a second. All right? So remember, the stone that was cut away that Daniel describes as being cut away was made by no human hand. And here comes one like the Son of Man riding on the clouds of heaven, and he's given the kingdom, the power, and the authority that all the other beasts had. I'm going to move past some of these real quick. All right? And all of their power and authority is all removed, and their universal dominion is all removed, and it's given to this one like the Son of Man. So that's removed. Sorry, I didn't advance the slides fast enough. That's removed. And the next one is Son of Man. Now, why is it that these kingdoms of mankind are now here represented as beasts? In Daniel chapter 2, what you get is an earthly, a very terrestrial picture of everything that's going to happen next. In Daniel chapter 7, you get a view, I think, of the same thing but you're looking at the heavenly council, what's happening in behind the scenes. Here are these beastly authorities that represent the kingdom of mankind. Why is it that the kingdom of mankind comes to be represented by a beast? Why is it? Remember, in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 1 and 2, God gives this kind of rule and authority and power to exercise dominion over all the earth, to subdue it and to be fruitful and multiply and... What is it? Fill the earth. Start off small, Adam, and then fill the earth. Sound familiar? Yes? He gives Adam that charge. But what does... So Adam is a king charged with setting up a kingdom. And what does Adam come to be dominated by? A beast of the field. One cleverer and wiser than any beast of the field. What happens then is the root of sin takes over mankind and he only is ever able to establish kingdoms that are dominated by this beastly serpent. Who is that beastly serpent? All of mankind's kingdoms then come to represent the devil himself. Warring and making war can never exercise the kind of dominion and authority that God gave to him. But here comes one riding on the clouds of heaven. And he, what does he look like? Well, he looks like a like a child of Adam. He looks like a he looks like Adam, in fact. And what does he do? Well, he never turns into a beast. He stays a man. And yet his authority, for some reason, remains uncorruptible. He's not corrupted by these beasts. In fact, their authority is stripped away and is given to him. And he's able to take his authority, preserve it, never be corrupted by the beast, and exercise a perfect rule. Now the question is, when does this happen? Well, you see, Jesus is asked this question, actually, in Matthew chapter 26. I want you to look there. And you got it in your verse packet. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63 to 65. Ma- Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, and they rigged him up in this kangaroo court. And, and, and uh, Caiaphas is in a pickle because none of their witnesses can seem to get their story straight, and they need to crucify this guy because he's a blasphemer. He says he's God. And so, Caiaphas, in exasperation, turns to Jesus, and he says in verse 63, uh, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, perjure yourself, just tell, just blaspheme right here in front of us, and then we can put an end to all this, and people can hear it for themselves. Listen to how Jesus responds to him. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on... You will see the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar? Seated at the right hand of power. Does that sound familiar? And coming on the clouds of heaven. That is Daniel seven thirteen to fourteen. He just cited it for Caiaphas. So what does Caiaphas say? I mean, if you or I who don't read our Old Testament were to just hear Jesus say that, we go, what? Just tell it to me straight, man. Come on. But how does Caiaphas understand that? As blasphemy. Look at what he says in 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. He has equated himself to the Messiah figure in Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14. You know that as well as I know that. He's guilty of blasphemy. Put him to death. We have enough. But what's curious is that Jesus says, from now on, you will see, Caiaphas. How will Caiaphas see if that day has still yet to be here, is still in our future? No, no. What Jesus is saying here to Caiaphas is that in my death and resurrection, all the power and authority from all of those beasts which Caiaphas represents at this point, will be given to me. And you're going to see it. You're going to watch, in three days' time, your power and authority be stripped away. And you're going to be allowed to exist for a little while, but then your kingdom is going to come to an end. And I'm going to have all rule and authority, it's going to be an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. Well, look at what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Remember that? the most you quote it Jesus comes to his disciples in 28:18 Jesus said to them All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me That's what he's affirming The crown me coming on the clouds of heaven you just witnessed it My coronation has just happened All authority has been placed on my head. What is the charge now? Go make disciples. So that stone, that's going to start off like this, maybe even smaller, like maybe the size of a mustard seed, might then grow into a plant that birds make their nests in, or might grow into a mountain that people stream to, to praise God. See, what Jesus is saying, I've established it, it's here, all authority is on my head. Go and make disciples and watch this thing grow. And over 2,000 years, you have seen it grow from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, To the book of Acts. You're watching it grow in front of you as people say yes to the gospel. We get hung up sometimes, so, so this is really Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurates this that we're talking about. And this is where it gets tricky. We look at this and we go, yeah, but it's not full yet. And we read some of the things in Daniel, even, and some of the things in Revelation, and some of the things in these and that, and the other prophets and things, and go, yeah, it's just not, I get it, it's partial, but it's not full. Yes, that's right. It has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated it has been it has begun but it hasn't been finalized yet it it would be like like this the old testament saying the day of god's justice is coming but what is involved in justice if somebody commits a crime against somebody what is involved in justice well there's a trial right then there's a verdict Then there is a sentencing, and the person is given the death penalty, let's say. And then 30 years later, they are executed. But what happens when the verdict is read? What does the family of the victim come out and say on the steps of the courthouse? Justice has been done. Has it? Not quite. Justice has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. There is a day coming when justice will be consummated. But here's what Daniel is telling you and, and, and what God is telling Daniel and what Daniel is telling all those around him in captivity and what all those who have recorded the book of Daniel have now said to us. The inauguration and the fulfillment are a done deal. It's sealed. Nothing is going to change it. That stone that crumbled all all the the whole statue of the kingdom of mankind, that, that strips away the beastly, satanic authority of all kingdoms, it's been stripped away and it's been given to Christ. That stone that started off like this has now begun to be like this around the world, but there will be a day when it is finalized, when Christ returns and it occupies the entire globe to such an extent that there's not a nook or cranny that evil can hide in. Okay? But the inauguration tells you that the fulfillment is coming. Does it make sense? Questions? Oh, but we don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> can, can. Quickly, Timothy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a very beastly idea, isn't it? Yeah, we need we need less people, population control, things like that. Yeah, a very beastly idea. Yeah. Sure, but but you know, just imagine. And I think what Timothy's getting at, and I agree, is is the uh, kingdoms of the earth will always pursue, eventually satanic ends. Will always reach satanic ends. And it's interesting, I think, just as a side note, when the kingdoms get progressively harder and yet more brittle, you see kingdoms lasting a shorter period of time, right? But they're fiercer, they're wealthier, they're stronger, they're the fiercest military that's ever been, but then all of a sudden they can't tell what a man or a woman is. You know, it's crazy. (laughs) Same, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's, let's go. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a time in your word, and, um, uh, I, I pray that you would uh, help us to just dwell on the fact that, that Christ's kingdom that we dwell in, that we are a part of, that the whole Old Testament bears out we've been welcomed into, that, that has been inaugurated in His death and resurrection, is a sure thing. And that the, the authority of the beasts has been taken away and given to Him. And that we can freely move through the earth without feeling the pressure of the beast and make disciples. It comes with challenges, it comes with fear, but we pray that it would come with boldness, that you would equip us, train us, send us. In Jesus' name, amen.